uh, right that we should pray. So let's bow our heads now and ask for God's help as we understand his word. Let's pray. Our Father, you have taught us that your word, all scripture, is God-breathed and is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So we pray, Father, expectantly that you will be speaking to us today through your word, that you would equip us for the good works you have prepared for us to do this week. And we ask this in the name of our Saviour and Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, it was the first day of school, and little Tim Tims was so excited. Um, the name Tim Tims, chosen completely by, ran- by random chance. Um, and Tim Tim was so excited about the, the first day of school, and uh, so he waved goodbye to his mother at the school gate, and uh, with great pride he walked down into his new school. And quickly he was ushered into the grand assembly hall, which was only used for the most important and special of occasions. Little Tim Tims sat expectantly waiting to see what would happen. Suddenly the school bell rang, and the doors swung open, and through them marched the headmaster, with gowns flowing everywhere, very proud and tall, he swept through, came up to the stage, and stood behind the, uh, the lectern. And there he was, to welcome them to their new school. To welcome all the new pupils, and to announce the beginning of the new school year. Well, Tim Tims was amazed and enthralled by this man, with his special billowy gowns. And uh, when he went off to, to his lessons, he could think of nothing else but this headmaster. And guess what? On his way to lunch that day, he saw him again, in another room this time, giving his welcome speech to some older members of the school, welcoming them back for the new year. And then again, when he was going to catch the bus, at the end of the day, he looked and and there he was, in another room this time, welcoming back the oldest pupils of the school, no doubt exhorting them to work their hardest and to prove themselves in their final year. Well... Little Tim Tim's caught the bus and got home, and his parents were so keen to talk to him. Oh, Timmy, Timmy, did you have a nice day at school? Did you make lots of friends? Did you enjoy the subject? Have you got a nice teacher? But, but no, Tim Tim's could only think of one person, the headmaster. Oh, mummy, he said, there's this amazing man. He wears gowns. He spends all, days giving, all his days giving amazing talks. I can't wait to hear him again tomorrow. So exciting. Well, now Tim Tim's has, has made a slight mistake, hasn't he, about the role of a headmaster. Because we know that uh, if Tim Tim stays at that school for long, um, which hopefully he will, then he will, he will realise that the headmaster's main job isn't actually giving speeches. Yes, he does that on important occasions, but most of the time, headmaster's quietly hidden away in his office, probably sorting out staff meetings and, and rotors and all sorts of important things. But the headmaster himself is essentially an invisible servant. Of course, he's an essential invisible servant. The school could not run without him. But essentially, he's, he's out of view. He's there, he's at work, but he's not always up giving grand speeches. Well, put that to the back of your minds for the moment. We'll come back to little Tim Tim's in his school later on. But um, there's, there's one similarity I want us to notice straight away from that story. And that is, the first day of school is a special time. And in Acts chapter 2, we've come to a very special day. A special day where, uh, as we'll see, the Holy Spirit comes and uh, empowers his people, God's people, to preach the gospel. But we're running ahead of ourselves. We come to a special day. And uh, if you've been here for the last few weeks, you'll know uh, that we're uh, doing a series through the book of Acts. 
And what's happened so far, let's do a quick recap. In Acts chapter 1, we saw Jesus ascending to heaven, didn't we? He rose from the dead, he stayed with his disciples and taught them, and eventually he rose into heaven. But before he went, he gave one last instruction, didn't he? Can you see that in Acts, back in chapter 1? And uh, in verse 8, he says to his disciples, You will be my witnesses, halfway through verse 8, in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This was Jesus' plan. Jesus has ascended into heaven and one day he will come back. But until then, the job of the church, the job of his disciples, the job of the apostles was to be a witness to the ends of the earth. That when Jesus returns, there can be people waiting for him. So, what do we expect to find the disciples doing in Acts chapter 2? It seems quite clear, doesn't it? They have a job to preach the good news to all the world. Can you imagine what you would do in their situation? Let's just imagine. See if you can put yourself in their place. It may be hard to do because it's such a long time ago, but let's have a think. Can you imagine being a tiny religious minority? Can you imagine that? In, in a country where actually there are different religions being taught. Can you imagine that? Because that's the situation that the disciples were in. And Jesus had told them something that uh, may have caused them some concern. He told them before he, uh, before he died on the cross that there were days coming where his disciples would be persecuted in the same way that he would be. Some of his disciples would be quite literally crucified, but all of them were told that they should expect difficulty, persecution. And all Christians today, we're told, aren't we, that we have to be prepared to take up our cross and follow Jesus, whatever the cost. Well, what would the disciples do, do you think? They're living in a world that is hostile to them. There are kingdoms around which are opposing the message, yet they belong, yes, they belong to an eternal kingdom that will never pass away. The kings of the earth may, may, may mock them, may curse them, may even put them to death, but their Lord, their King Jesus, has risen from the dead. He's conquered death. And even if his disciples are crucified, Jesus has promised that those who remain faithful to him to the end will have eternal life with him. The kingdoms of the earth may be against them, the kings of the earth may be against them. But Jesus is their king. He is the Lord of lords, in fact, and the king of kings. And he has a right to be known. So, what do the disciples do? Of course, it's pretty obvious, surely. They will go into the streets and they will preach the good news to all who will hear. Every single person, from house to house, from street to street, door to door, public and private, they will be preaching the good news. Surely, that's what they will do. Because people need to hear that there is forgiveness in the name of Christ to all who will believe. Well, is that what the disciples are doing? Well, that's what they do. Let's have a look at uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 1. We'll find that they're not actually out there preaching the gospel, as, as it says on the outline and as it's come up on the screen. They are waiting for the beginning of the end. The beginning of the end times where the gospel will go out to all the world. They're waiting. Listen, Acts chapter 2 and verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Well, why is that? Why is it that they're, they're all waiting? Why aren't they getting on with their job? Well, it's, it's, it's quite obvious. If we look back in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, I read out the first half earlier, sorry, the second half earlier, but if we read from the beginning of Acts chapter 1, verse 8, we're told this. Jesus says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Jesus himself had told them to wait 
for the Holy Spirit to come. Well, okay, that just pushes the question back a bit further. And surely Jesus knows the urgency of the gospel going out. So why are they meant to wait for the Holy Spirit? Well, I suggest to you there are two reasons why Jesus gives this command. You can see them point A and point B. The first point is uh, concerned with the glory of God. And uh, we'll look at that one first. The second is about the weakness of the apostles. Now, look back at uh, chapter 2, verse 1 again. Um, what are the disciples doing? When they're waiting. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. That's, in fact, all we're told about them. We don't know what they were doing. And I think, quite deliberately, we're not told what they're doing. And that is because Luke just doesn't care what they're doing. It doesn't matter what the disciples themselves are doing, because the beginning of the end, the beginning of the end times, will not be begun by the disciples, but by God himself. God does not want us to think, even for a moment, that the task of world evangelization began at the initiative of the disciples. God himself will take the credit, God will take the glory. And as you read through the Bible, you notice that that's a common theme. Every time we get a major point in salvation history, God is the one who takes the initiative. He will not share his glory with another. He will not let us think that it's the disciples who started off the task. No, God himself would come in power and personally lead the task of world evangelization. So, it turns out that what the disciples are doing is pretty irrelevant. Luke doesn't even mention it. We're not told. Um, and that doesn't matter. Were they praying? We don't know. Because it's nothing to do with them when the end times begin. The end times, when the gospel goes out to all the world. And yet, there's another reason, I think. Not just the glory of God that's at stake here. But point B, we, we learn something about the weakness of the apostles. Let's, let's just engage in some harmless speculation, okay? We're not told what, what they're doing, but let's imagine, put ourselves in their place again. What, what would you do if you were one of these apostles? What do you think you'd be doing in that, in that room waiting for the beginning of the end? You know that there are dangerous days ahead. Jesus has warned that some, some of you are going to die. And so, how are you going to encourage yourselves? Well, maybe they would uh, take the advice that we read later on in the Bible, that uh, it hasn't yet been written, but at one point we're told that we should consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men that we would not lose courage, we would have hope. So maybe they were trying to encourage one another with stories about Jesus' life. Perhaps, perhaps they were thinking of the major moments in his life where he did endure opposition from sinful men. Perhaps their minds go back to his boldness in the Garden of Gethsemane. Or maybe to his, his boldness in front of Pilate or the Jewish court, the Sanhedrin. Or maybe they remember Jesus' time where he's hanging there on the cross, being crucified, and yet saying, Father, forgive them, they know what, not what they do. Perhaps, perhaps yes, that's what the disciples would be doing, reminding themselves of Jesus' example. Surely, surely that's what they would do. But if we just imagine ourselves back there for a moment... We'd realise that to drink this medicine, reminding themselves of, of Jesus, is, is actually a bittersweet thing to do for these disciples. For which disciple do you think would be brave enough to remind all of the others of the Garden of Gethsemane? Because not only in the Garden of Gethsemane did Jesus stand up to, uh, to his foes, but the disciples themselves, where were they? Well, they were fleeing in terror, in shame, abandoning their friend to his foes, their master to the mob. It would have been a bitter memory for them. Or what about 
What about when Jesus was standing before Pilate? Who, could, who would dare bring up that point? When, when Simon Peter himself was in the room, because everybody knew what Peter was doing when Jesus was standing before Pilate, Peter himself was denying his Lord in front of a servant girl. Well, what about when Jesus gloriously rose from the dead? Surely that's safe. They can think back to the time when Jesus ascended, rose from the grave and conquered death. But, but where did he find them? Where were they? Were they there celebrating victoriously? No. They were locked away hidden in terror of the authorities in an inner room. The disciples were under no delusions about this fact. They knew that they were cowards. Gone were the days where Peter would say, Lord, even if all others forsake you, I will hold fast to the end. No, those days of pride were gone. They knew that they, they were weak. And they could not begin this task of, of sharing the gospel with the world just by themselves, surely. No. And that pride, which so characterized those early disciples, if we think back right through to the beginning of the story of the Bible, it was there in, in the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve decided that they would choose for themselves who was boss. They went their own way. And in judgment, God kicked them out of the garden. And, and we see that prize continue through to the climax, Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel, the story that was read to us earlier. Because what happened there? Well, now it wasn't just one family that were rebelling against God. But you remember Genesis chapter 11, Tower of Babel, the entire of humanity in those days had one turn, one common speech. And did they use that to praise God? Oh no, they united against him. The whole world stood up against God in arrogance, building themselves the Tower of Babel, a monument to human pride. And what did God do about that? Well, no way will God let it continue. And so, as we read, he destroyed the tower and scattered the people across the face of the earth, giving them different languages, confusing them, that they could no longer unite to oppose him. And we still see uh, the consequences of that every day. Um, here in Malaysia, when I go to a restaurant, try to order myself an ice croissant, and no one has a clue what I'm trying to say, well, that's because of the Tower of Babel, because of human pride and God's judgment on pride. But let's notice something else. Not only does the scattering of people and the many different languages oppose our own plans and get in our way and annoy us sometimes, but more importantly, it stands in the way of the advance of the gospel itself. For Jesus wanted his disciples to be witnesses to all nations, but all the nations speak different languages. How can the disciples themselves spread the good news to people in different languages, languages they don't even know? It's a hopeless task, isn't it? And as they sit there in that room waiting for the beginning of the end, they know two things. They know that they have not got the power to do it themselves, and they have not been equipped either. There's no way that they can take the gospel to the ends of the earth. The stage is set. Everything looks hopeless. So what do we expect? If we know our Bibles, we will expect God to come in, the hero himself. God will come and bring in the beginning of the end. And we see that under our next point. Point two, tongues for the beginning of the end. And let's have a look together at verses two to four. I'll read them out for us. That's two, two to four. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. 
notice some things here, some, some important details. Firstly, there's this violent wind, and who could mistake that for anything but the presence of God himself? God, by his spirit, was there in the building. And not only that, but these strange tongues of fire were on their heads. What's going on here? What are these tongues of fire? What do they mean? Well, have, have a look again at verses 3 and 4, and perhaps we'll spot something. There's a pun going on here, do you notice? They saw what seems to be tongues of fire. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues. Yeah, there's, there's a link here between the tongues of fire, God's presence, and the words that the disciples themselves are speaking. What is this connection? What's going on? Well, to answer that question, what we need to do, obviously, is read down and find out what it is that the disciples have been empowered and equipped to say. So let's read on uh, down to verse 11. Now, they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? How is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya, Nazarene, visitors from Rome, persecutions, converts to Judaism, Cretans, and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Isn't that amazing? These disciples are speaking in different languages. And, and not only are they speaking in a different language, now, there's something about these languages. It's not a mystical language, let's be clear about that. It's not some heavenly language that only God can understand. No, 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 these people can understand them. The people from all the different nations are hearing them in their own languages. It's, it's not a mystical language here in Acts 2 between, between the disciples and God. Nor is it merely Babel that means nothing. No, it's not Babel. This is the reverse of Babel that we, that we saw earlier. It's the reverse. It's as if those barriers that have come up, the language barriers that thwart us and seem to be thwarting God's plans, well, those barriers have come down. It's like the fire doors have been flung wide open and the flame of God's powerful gospel is spreading unhindered throughout Jerusalem. God has temporarily brought, brought these barriers down. Now let's have a look more at the tongues of fire. Notice two things. Firstly, um, they're fiery tongues. What does the fire, what do you think the fire symbolises? What does it represent here? Well, I think that the fire represents God's power. How do we see God's power? Well, the disciples who before were so timid and weak, what are they doing? They're out on the streets of Jerusalem, boldly declaring the wonders of God. Nothing but God's power could, could make such a transformation, surely. It's the power of God. And, and the tongues as well. These Galileans are speaking in all these different languages. So God himself has, has given them the ability, not only the power to speak, but he's equipping them as well. He's empowering and equipping by the fiery tongues that they can preach the gospel in Jerusalem. And no wonder all these different people and different nations are filled with astonishment. I mean, just imagine, imagine now, um, I broke into perfect Mandarin, or, or Bahasa Malay. Yeah, it'd be wonderful, because I haven't spent any time learning it, so it'd be great if God could miraculously give me perfect, perfect Mandarin. It would save a lot of time ordering in Chinese coffee shops, I'll tell you that. Well, no wonder they'd be astonished by these, these miraculous tongues which they could never have learned. But can I suggest that there's a miracle going on even greater than the fact that they're speaking in different languages? Because it's not just that they're speaking, but it's what they're speaking that's important. What are they saying? Then in verse 11, they're declaring the wonders of God in their own tongues. All these different people's tongues. 
And that itself is a miracle. Because these wonders of God were things that the disciples themselves also could never have worked out for themselves. Just like I, I can't work out Mandarin if I talk to a Chinese person. Well, I can't work out the wonders of God unless God himself makes them known to me. That takes a miracle. That, in fact, is the work, the primary work, of the Holy Spirit today. He is the one that makes known to us the wonders of God, the mysteries of his, his wonderful plan that he put into effect through Jesus Christ to bring all people together under him that would believe. So that's what the Holy Spirit does today. And that would have convinced Theophilus that the Holy Spirit was really present. Now, um, for those of you who weren't here a couple of weeks ago, you may not know, um, Theophilus is a man to whom Luke, the writer of Acts, was writing here. He was he's perhaps a friend of his. And, um, and Luke wrote, firstly, Luke's Gospel to Theophilus, and then, secondly, the book of Acts, the complete, the two-word volume. And um, Theophilus would, would remember, I expect, um, that back in the book of Luke, when the Holy Spirit came and filled uh, Elizabeth and Zechariah, two Jewish people, um, what did they do? Well, suddenly they declared the wonders of God. They explained things to those around that they couldn't have known if God hadn't made them known. So clearly, this is the work of the Holy Spirit. He's making known the wonders of God. So these miraculous tongues, though, uh, they're a sign for the beginning of the end. The beginning here, where the gospel would first go out. The Holy Spirit is enabling them to speak in different languages and to speak the truth about God. But that raises a question. Have a look down at part B. It's going to come up on the screen now. Um, what about tongues for today? What about these supernatural tongues? This is a very. I expect a lot of you have been thinking about this already. Um, I mean, a lot of Christians, um, I think mistakenly, would say that the proof that someone is a Christian is that they can speak in these miraculous tongues. Now, why would anybody come to that conclusion? And, uh, and let's, let's see if we can work it out. Let's think back in, back in fact to, um, well, we'll think back in a moment to Tim Tim's, but let's work out the logic, first of all. So we saw, didn't we, a couple of weeks ago when Andrew was preaching from Acts chapter 1, that every Christian has the Holy Spirit. To be baptised with the Holy Spirit is just an equivalent way of saying you have become a Christian. The, the rest of the Bible makes that clear. Every Christian has the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, we could never believe, could we? After all, as we've seen, the Holy Spirit is the one who makes known the wonders of God to us. We couldn't believe unless he'd done that for us. So the Holy Spirit lives in each Christian. And, so the argument would continue, well, let's think, what, how do we know? What's the evidence the Holy Spirit has come? Aha! Acts chapter 2. When the Holy Spirit came, he enabled them to speak in other tongues miraculously. So, if all Christians have the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit equips people to speak in other tongues miraculously, therefore, I'm a Christian, I should speak in other tongues. That's how the argument would go. And then, if uh, these people who believe that were to be even more bold, they would argue the other way. And they might even say, if you don't speak in tongues, you're not even a Christian. Okay, so that's, that's the way they might argue this. And, and we can see, can't we, if we think back to the story of little Tim Tims in his school, that they're making the same mistake that he did about the headmaster. Because the headmaster... As we know, yes, he does come out on important occasions. He makes grand speeches to welcome the, uh, the new school children and, and to start off the school year. But most of the time, he's actually out of sight, behind closed doors, busily keeping things going. But, but the pupils don't see him very much. Um, if, you, if you look for him in, 
in speeches and things, they're not necessarily going to find him because that's not his main work. And it's the same with the Holy Spirit. You see, the Holy Spirit here in Acts 2 has arrived to usher in the last days. The beginning of the end has arrived. Now, the gospel will go out to all the nations. The Holy Spirit will come to enable the disciples to preach it. So, he's arrived already. He's proved his presence by these miraculous tongues and signs and things. And we don't need him to come again. He came 2,000 years ago at Pentecost. He's come. We don't need him to come again. Yeah? So, we, we don't need to expect Christians to be able to have these miraculous tongues today. And this, this little detour I've taken about the importance of tongues today um, is important to address, I think, because there are a couple of big problems that can arise if we get this wrong. As with any doctrine in the Bible, it doesn't remain merely theoretical for long. As soon, a misunderstanding of the Bible will work itself out into problems which will cause damage to the Christian church and the Christians individually. And if you're taking notes, um, I've got a, just a couple of, of quick points to make under this heading. The first one is if we focus on the Holy Spirit incorrectly, um, misunderstand him, we can lose focus. And the second problem that can happen um, is that we can lose assurance. We can lose our focus and we can lose our assurance. Let's just go through those um, briefly. So, if we think back to... Um, to Tim Tim's and his, his school again. Imagine the end of the school year has come and uh, amazingly the school has done better than ever before. Um, they've come top not only in, in their, their region but in the whole country in every single subject. Wow, what an amazing school. No wonder as uh, the headmaster wakes up and goes to see the results, the journalists are all queuing up trying to interview him to find out where it is. How has the school been so successful? And of course, uh, taken by surprise, but he knows he knows what to say. He praises the hard-working pupils, all the, the diligence with which they've done their homework and uh, how attentively they've listened in class. And, and also he praises the teachers and the efforts they've put into constructing their lesson plans. And, uh, oh, and, and the parents have been so supportive and have, have encouraged the children in their work and the extracurricular activities. And, oh, and the caretaker, and he's kept the grass so, kept so straight. And, and the secretaries, they've been, oh, been so good, keeping everything in order. The headmaster has had nothing to worry about. All the praise must go to the school itself. Well, imagine what happens the next day when the headmaster wakes up and he sees the newspaper on the floor. He quickly rushes to see, and there's a four-page spread of, of, of himself. Of himself. And the journalists are waxing eloquent about how amazing the headmaster must be to have transformed this school around. Oh, no! How embarrassed would he be? Well, when we lose our focus on, on Jesus himself and we're distracted away to the Holy Spirit, then no wonder he's going to be a bit, a bit, well, a bit embarrassed, to say the least, because... As we've seen, the Holy Spirit's job is to, to point to Jesus, to reveal things about Jesus to us. But worse than that, worse than embarrassing the Holy Spirit, is the fact that there's a very real danger. If, if we do turn our focus away from the true gospel, that is, the good news about Jesus, his, his birth and life and death and resurrection, his ascension and return, if we lose our focus on that and are distracted away to the exciting works of, of the Holy Spirit back in Acts chapter 2 and if we keep our entire focus there and forget entirely about Jesus well what's going to happen to our preaching and our teaching we'll be preaching a false gospel won't we if that's where our focus is entirely fixed we'll preach a gospel that cannot save it's so important that we don't get distracted away from the truth 
by a misunderstanding of the Holy Spirit, we don't want to lose our focus. And the second point, we don't want to lose our assurance. I've met, I've met Christians, uh, even since arriving in Malaysia, that um, have argued uh, as follows. Um, Christians have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit um, is involved in these miraculous signs and wonders. I don't see these miraculous signs and wonders and tongues in my life. So am I a Christian? Or even if I am a Christian, maybe I'm a second class Christian then. That God doesn't really love as much as he loves the others. Now, we can see where they've gone wrong, can't we? We like Tim Tim's in his school. And, uh, and a term's gone by and, and suddenly he has an awful thought. <gasps> Where's the headmaster? He hasn't given a single speech. He hasn't welcomed me back since the first day. What's going on? Maybe he's left the school. Maybe he's not doing his work. What will become of me? What will become of the school? But no wonder he isn't seeing the headmaster at work because he's looking in the wrong place. He's, he's looking for evidence of the headmaster in grand speeches, but that's not his primary work. In fact, he should be looking to... Well, let me suggest you a, a few places, that, let's say three places, that Christians can look so we can see evidence that the Holy Spirit is at work in our lives. Number one, have you ever been amazed or encouraged or excited about something that you read in the Bible or that you hear in a sermon or, or suddenly you're driving home um, and, and this verse pops into your mind and suddenly it's as if God has, has turned on the torch and shone a spotlight on this verse it suddenly makes sense suddenly makes sense and you're filled with praise and wonder at, at the Bible at God and what he's done have you ever, ever felt an experience anything like that? just partly like that? because if you have let me tell you that's a spiritual experience. Or well, how about another, another place we can look? As Christians, we must, we must admit that we do sin. We do sin every day of our lives. Thought, word and deed. Negligence, weakness, things we haven't done, things that we left undone. And as Christians, do we sometimes get that nag of the Holy Spirit telling us, no, this is just not right. How can you do that kind of thing? Jesus has died for you. He's made you a new creation to please God. How can you be living in sin? Turn away from that sin. And, filled with, with sadness at your own sin, but joy at what Christ has done, you're moved to admit that you are a sinner to God, but you believe that Jesus has died for you. You confess your sins, and you declare to God that you will try your very best with his help to turn away from that particular sin, and not upset him anymore. You trust in him to forgive you. Do you, ever, do you ever find that? I hope so. Do you ever repent from your sins? Because if you do, let me tell you, that is a spiritual experience. Oh, oh one final quick one. Um, you have, I'm sure, many of you, friends or even family, who aren't yet trusting in Christ, who you know that if, if they persist in unbelief, in rejecting the king, then when he returns... Or they'll be lost forever. And you long sometimes. That, that, that truth is with us always. But does sometimes it strike you with particular force? And you long that God would bring the gospel to them. You pray, God, please would you, please would you be kind and open the eyes of my friends to the truth? Do you long to go and share the truth with them yourself? Do you long to share the gospel? Because if you do, let me tell you, that is a spiritual experience. These are places where we can look for the Holy Spirit in our lives. Don't be distracted by by a sideshow, by things that he doesn't tend to do. 
Well, that uh, concludes part two, point two, and, uh, and that leads us in a good position to move on um, to look at what does the Holy Spirit do in the lives of, of those who aren't Christians. We've seen what he does for Christians, but what does he do for those who aren't yet believers? Well, this will help us to understand why Pentecost itself, the festival of Pentecost, had to be the beginning of the end. Pentecost is the beginning of the end. Um, now, there's a clue that Luke gives us that tells us that, that this isn't by chance that, that, God, um, that God chose to send the Holy Spirit and begin the end times with the day of Pentecost. Can you see it? It's there in, in verse 1. Back in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Do you see the clue? No, 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 you don't, because... Um, unfortunately, it's there in the Greek, but in our translations, it's, it's been obscured for us. But if we had a more accurate translation, um, uh, we would read something like this. When the day of Pentecost fully came, or arrived, or was fulfilled. When the day of Pentecost was fulfilled. Luke is saying that something of great importance is happening on the day of Pentecost itself. It's not like, it's not just a God, imagine God up in his throne room, thinking, hmm, I want to start the end times with a bit of a bang. I want people from all nations to hear the good news. How am I going to do this? Aha! What a good idea I've just had. Every year, the Jews come to Jerusalem to celebrate the annual Harvest Festival. So, how about I come by my spirit, empower my disciples to speak in all the different languages, and then Jews from all nations will hear the gospel. And not only that, they'll go back home and preach it to their friends. What a good idea. Is God just being pragmatic? Or is there more to it? Well... Uh, you may have guessed that I think there's something more to it than that. What is Pentecost? If we're going to read about how Pentecost has been fulfilled, we need to understand what Pentecost is. Well, Pentecost uh, was a festival that God gave to the Israelites in, all the way back in the book of Exodus. Now, the second book of the Bible, you may remember, God rescued his people from slavery in Egypt, took them out into the desert, and at Mount Sinai, through Moses, he gave them the law. He gave them many things that they should do as his people, to please him for what he's done. And one of the things, he gave them ten commandments. He also gave them lots of instructions about different festivals. And he gave them a command, every year, I want you to celebrate the harvest festival. And this is how I want you to do it. I want my priests to come to me in the temple, or in the tabernacle, if the temple had not yet been built. So the priests would come to the temple, and they would bring the first sheaves of barley, the first the first fruits, they called it, of the harvest. The harvest had just begun. They would bring the first fruits to God and give him thanks, saying, in effect, God, thank you so much for the beginning of the harvest. And I'm so looking forward to all the rest you're going to give us. This is the beginning of the harvest. And now, that Pentecost festival, that festival of first fruits, is being fulfilled. How? Well, not just by a priest bringing a bit of barley into the temple, but no, God himself is beginning to bring in people into his kingdom and uh, if we have a quick sneak look ahead to next week um, if we look down chapter 2 and um, and towards the end of the chapter um, verse 41 over the page verse 41 those who accepted his message that is Peter explaining what's going on those who accepted his message were baptised and about 3,000 were added to their number that day 3,000 people 3,000 Jews suddenly realised by God's power that Jesus himself was the long-awaited and promised Messiah and they bowed the knee before him. 3,000 people came to believe and that is just the first fruits of the harvest. 
first, the first small number of people that came to believe. And as we look over the years, those 2,000 or so years since back then, how many hundreds and hundreds of millions of people have come to put their, their trust in Jesus Christ? In fact, maybe even a billion people have come to faith in him over those thousands of years. So this is the first fruits of the harvest. So Pentecost itself has, is a significant time. And not only that, the place itself is significant. The time is significant. Uh, can I have on the screen? Um, Jerusalem is where it all had to begin. Now, don't turn back there, but um, the Israelites, all the way hundreds of years ago, since the time when Isaiah the prophet was prophesying, were expecting this. They were expecting um, the law will go out from Zion. His word, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. This is what Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 2. The Jews were expecting a day when from Jerusalem, from Mount Zion, the law would go out. Oh, what does that mean? Well, Jesus himself explains it for us um, in, in Luke chapter 24. And, um, and we read this. Jesus opened the minds of uh, the disciples so they could understand the scriptures. And he told them, this is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. This is the fulfillment of Pentecost and this is the outworking of that promise that from Jerusalem the law of the Lord will go out. Repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in Jesus' name. But do the crowds get it? Now we've seen lots of evidence to show that Pentecost is a significant event it's the beginning of the end, but do the crowds get it? Let's have a look in Acts chapter 2 and verses 12 and 13. Do they get it? Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. Well, no, they, they fail to understand, don't they? They don't realise what's going on, but that's actually not so surprising, is it? Because they're not going to understand the full significance of Pentecost, because they don't understand who Jesus is yet. What they need, and Peter realises this, and we'll go on to see as we close, what they need to understand God's work in the world, just as we need today, we need, they need the Holy Spirit to make it clear to them. Through the teaching of the, uh, the apostles, through the Bible. They need the Holy Spirit, the apostles, and the Bible to make this clear. So what happens? Well, Peter takes them to the Bible. Simon Peter stands up in front of them, and he says, no, this can only mean one thing. These are the last days. This is the beginning of the end. And to prove his point, he, uh, he takes them to a prophecy. So let me read out to you, uh, verses 14 to 21. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd, fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And he begins to quote an Old Testament prophet. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below. Blares and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So Peter quickly dismisses their, their silly idea about drunkenness. 
And, you know, now, something of great significance is happening here. And to explain it, he takes them to this prophecy by Joel. Now, what do we make of, of this prophecy? Um, to understand it better, I think we can break it into two parts. And the first part, verses 17 and 18. And uh, I'll explain to you why I think we can do this. Um, have a look with me at verses 17 and 18 and, and notice how verse 17 begins and how verse 18 ends. Okay? Verse 17 begins with the last days, God says he pour out his spirit on all people, sons and daughters will prophesy. The, la- the last days come, God pours out his spirit, people prophesy. Verse 18, the other side, God will pour out his spirit and they will prophesy in those days. Do you see that? So the beginning and the end, saying the same kind of thing. And this is a common technique used in the Old Testament especially, by prophets and, and people who write poetry, to explain that what happens at the beginning and the end um, is actually an, extra, an, an explanation of what's going on in the middle. So if we understand the beginning and the end, we, we've got the middle as well. So, well, let's have a look at the middle of the prophecy. So, the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. God says he's pouring out his spirit on all people. Now, well, let's first of all, what does that mean? Is Peter saying that that has been completely fulfilled? Well, I, I don't think so. I don't think that's happened yet. Because at the moment, what are we seeing? 120 Jews, the first disciples speaking in, in different tongues. And, and uh, it doesn't look like he has completely brought that to pass. So you can't really say that uh, that's been fulfilled completely. Okay, so let's, let's look at the other extreme. I will pour out my spirit on all people. If it doesn't just mean the disciples, does that mean every single person? Every single person who ever lived? Every single person in the world? God will pour out his spirit on everybody. Is that what he's saying? Well, well, no. He can't be saying that either, because we know that when somebody has the Holy Spirit living inside them, they're a Christian. And many people have lived and died in this world. They're not Christians. Let's look down to verse 21. Who is it that will be saved? Well, it's everyone who calls on the name of the Lord that will be saved. Not everyone without distinction. It's everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. So, Peter can't be quoting from, our, from Joel and, and be saying that all people will receive the Holy Spirit in the same way that the Holy Spirit has come here. So, what is he saying? Well, I think what he's saying then, if it's not all people without, distinct, without distinction, he means well, all different types of people. And the word can mean that as well. It doesn't have to mean every single person but the word all can mean all types. And now, does that fit with what happens in the middle of the passage? Is that what we we see? Well, well, yes. Because he goes through different sections of society, doesn't he? Peter says, well, your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see dreams and your old men, sorry, your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams, even on my servants, both men and women. It's this totality of of the, 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 well, all the different people in society, isn't it? that uh, he's talking about. And the amazing thing is, God's plans here don't just restrict themselves to the society of Jews. But as we read through the book of Acts, we see not only Jews believing, like happened at the end of Acts 2, but the gospel comes to, to the Samaritans, you know, goes from Judea to Samaria, and then out to the ends of the earth. And we find even Gentiles believing, people like us, who aren't Jews, come to believe the gospel. So, and the amazing thing is, each time the gospel advances into one of these new regions, we see a mini Pentecost. We see people speaking in tongues. So, so I think that's what, what St. Peter is saying here. And uh, if we read the book of Acts in context, we, we will see that for ourselves.
And it's a bit of a shame, isn't it? You might think that's a bit of a letdown. I wish all Christians could, you know, speak in tongues, do miraculous signs, dream dreams, see visions and so on. That would be, wouldn't that be great evidence for us that the Holy Spirit is at work? Tangible proof. But let me suggest, if we think like that, we're looking again in the wrong place. If we want to see proof that the Holy Spirit is at work in the world, we have it all around us. All around us. The gospel today has reached every nation in the world. As far as I know, there may be tribes within those nations that that haven't yet believed, but all through the world, the gospel has gone. And people have started to believe. There are millions of Christians, and that is only because of the work of the gospel. In fact, a recent survey that was done has, uh, has apparently proved that the fastest growing religion in the world is actually evangelical Christianity. This is a surprise. I thought it would be Islam, but they say it's evangelical Christianity. Bible-believing Christians. And that is proof, isn't it, that the Holy Spirit is at work. So, the church is speaking with many tongues today, aren't they? In all the different countries, they're speaking in their tongues and explaining the language, the, the gospel in their own languages to, the, to their people. And their work of um, organizations like Wycliffe Bible Translators are, are translating the Bible into these new languages so they have the scriptures for themselves. So, we do have evidence of God's supernatural power. These are the last days. They have begun. They're continuing. And the gospel is spreading to all nations. And this is the power of God. And that leaves us with one quick final question to consider. Why? Why is the gospel spreading? And uh, to answer that, we see the second point of what uh, Peter is saying from Joel. Verses 19 to 21. Why? Because the end is coming. The end is coming. And what a terrifying end it will be. Just look at the language. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is going to be an end, not just of the world, when Jesus returns. But the end of the entire universe, notice, it's the cosmic scale. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. Jesus is ready to come at any moment. The reason he's not here at the moment, the reason he's still in heaven, is not because for the last 2,000 years he's had something else to worry about. No, it's proof that Jesus longs for none to perish, but all to have a chance to come to repentance. He longs for people to believe, and so... His delay is giving people more and more chance, more and more time to repent and believe. But the end is coming. So let's, let's close by reminding ourselves of this. Jesus' patience will not last forever, but the end will come. But the question is, are we ready for the end? Are we ready to face God ourselves? Are we sure? How about our families? Are they ready? Our friends? Our colleagues at work? All of us has work to do. The task is unfinished. We still need to make the good news known. But we have a great promise, don't we, at the end. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So let's uh, close in prayer. Our Father, we do thank you 
that by your Holy Spirit you have made known to us the truth about the end of time, the truth that we can never have worked out for ourselves. And we ask that by your same Spirit you will be prompting us to make sure we really are ready to meet you face to face and give an account for the way we've lived our lives. Please help us, Father, to turn if we aren't already and trust in Christ, trusting him to our deaths. And we pray also, Father, for the courage and conviction that we need to take the gospel, the words of eternal life, to our colleagues and friends. And by your mercy, Father, would you bring them to repentance and saving faith in Christ before it's too late. We pray this in his name. Amen.